Lord Jesus, we call upon you in that nearness now to be closer to our hearts than our own thoughts. We pray that you'll pour out your Holy Spirit as has been promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ and speak to each and every one of us just the word we need to hear in Christ's name. Amen. Well, at the cross of Christ, Jesus speaks to a woman who is alone in a crowd. And he speaks to the hidden loneliness in all of our lives. We've been reflecting on the six characters that John introduces us to in his passion. Passion is the fancy word for the dying of Christ. And trying to learn from each of them, after we get to Pontius Pilate, whom we discussed last week, we come to a woman. Actually, John's gospel features strong women all the way through. It's just a part of his gospel, strong women. And we find this little crowd of, of women with soldiers at the foot of the cross. Many of them, as it turns out, are named Mary. Which shouldn't be a surprise because Mary is the, from the Greek version of the name Miriam. And you remember Miriam, that's Moses' sister. Actually the woman who saved Moses when she was a girl, probably from the river. And all, uh, she was a prophet in her own right, a strong woman. But one of the women in this crowd goes unnamed. Jesus doesn't tell us the name, nor does John. Because they know you already know her name. All right, let's find out who this is. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. If you're grabbing the black book in the rack in front of you, pull, the, pull, it, pull it open to page 882. Let's stand together if you're able and read God's word, all of us, aloud together as an act of worship. John 19, verses 23 through 27. Okay, when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. There's a stubborn fact here, a stubborn fact. At the cross of Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, finds herself alone in a crowd. 
Now, there's a stubborn fact. When I use that phrase, I'm referring to that feature of mystery stories in which there's one fact that just doesn't seem to fit in with all the other facts. You know how that works in a mystery? The, the, the stubborn fact is the fact that keeps the detective awake, keeps her asking more questions, even though so many seem already answered. A stubborn fact is the one fact that keeps the case open. Just doesn't seem to fit in. And there's a stubborn fact here at the cross. What is that stubborn fact? Well, it's that when Jesus speaks to this woman, who we know is Mary, the mother of Jesus, he doesn't refer to her in a way that we expect. He calls her woman. I mean, it's polite enough, but even in their culture, it's odd to call your mother woman. So what do you make of it? Why does Jesus do that? What's going on here? Well, it's a stubborn fact. So let me play detective with you today, and you can join me in this. Let me offer a few theories. First, let me suggest that this could be the case of a new caregiver. The case of a new caregiver. So if it were, when Jesus says woman to his mother, he says it to her this way so that she'll see another man who can be her caregiver. Jesus, remember, is dying on the cross. He's looking down, sees these people. It's kind of a blur, I imagine. And then the text says, ah, he sees his mother. See that? He sees his mother. This is Mary. Mary, who three years ago was a wedding guest, smiling into a water basin, now suddenly full of wine, right? This is Mary. I mean, maybe Jesus is having his flashbacks, right, like they say you do. This is Mary, who 21 years ago was an exasperated mother, who's all she could do to find her lost boy and found him in the temple talking to the rabbis. This is, this is Mary. This is Mary, who 33 years ago was just a girl, 14, 15 years old, marveling with her cousin Elizabeth about wonders promised by an angel. This is Mary. Now she's alone in a crowd. Now she's approaching 50 years old, Mary. She's widowed. We think that her husband, Joseph, passed away sometime after Jesus was 12. And her sons don't share her faith in Jesus. She's alone. Who will take care of Mary now that Jesus is dying? Well, here Jesus seems to be implying for the world, Mary, woman, here's a man, a caregiver. Answer to the question, mystery solved? Maybe. Maybe that's what's going on. Look at the text again. Verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. Now notice there's a play on the word seeing here. It says Jesus saw his mother. And then where the text says here, it could, it's really in Greek a form of the word, the same word, seeing. As if to say when uh, Jesus sees his mother. He says to each of them, see each other differently. Woman, look, or behold your son. Uh, behold your mother, he says. He's inviting them to see each other 
as mutual caregivers, this is, this is a new bond that's formed here between them in this moment. A family bond, not the kind of bond of blood or marriage, but a bond that's based on him, the crucified Savior. And he's saying, now I want you to see each other differently as family, caring for one another. So if this is correct, what Jesus would mean when he says woman is this. He'd be saying, care for her as your own mother, John. Care for him as your own son, Mary. Care for one another the way I have cared for you, giving you my very life. Okay, this could be the case of a new caregiver. The theories fit the facts? Do you think they kind of fit the facts? Well, sort of, but does it go far enough? I mean, there's still that stubborn fact. He calls her woman. I mean, he could have called her mother. What's going on there? Well, let me suggest another theory. We could call this theory the case of the new creation. Not caregiver, but creation. So under this theory, when Jesus says woman, he says woman so that John, looking at Mary, would see a new Eve, the first woman, a new creation. Now here's what we do know. John is actually writing a new creation story. He sets out from the very beginning. He couldn't be clear about that. He says, in the beginning was the word. He's, he, he's imitating the words from the first few words of the book of Genesis, which is a creation story. John's saying, I'm writing a new creation story, it, it, complete with the same imagery in Genesis 1, light and darkness. On the sixth day, a new humanity is formed. And John says, those who receive Jesus can become children of God, a new humanity. And as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, John in his gospel counts out the first six days of Jesus' ministry, just like uh, Moses had counted out in Genesis the first six days of creation. And you know what happens on the sixth day? In Genesis, it's, it's uh, man and the woman are created. Well, here in John's gospel, it's Jesus saying to someone, his mother, woman, on the sixth day at a wedding celebration in Cana. And we find another woman at the tomb. This one's Mary Magdalene. But notice how Jesus, uh, John describes the scene. It's not described like a cemetery, which it is. It's described like a garden, which it also is. But an echo of Eden here. So woman and man, Eve and Adam, it could be that he's making reference to a new creation, a new man and a new woman that become reality at, at his dying. Well, that's, now it's the plot is thickening. This is kind of getting interesting, right? Benoit Blanc smiles smugly at you. Hercule Poirot twirls his handlebar mustache. If this is correct, then when Jesus says woman, what he means to us to hear is see one another as a new creation. Not trapped in your old identities, but taking on a new care for one another as a family in the context of a whole new reality with all of its new possibilities. I have struck the head of the serpent, cast out the ruler of this world on this cross. I will make all things new. Okay. The case of a new creation. The theory seems to fit the facts. It goes further. 
but does it go far enough still? We still have the stubborn fact. Woman could have called her Mary. So let's try one more theory. One more theory. I call this one the case of a new community. Not caregiver, not creation, but the case of a new community. So under this narrative theory, when Jesus says woman, he does so because he wants us, the readers of the gospel one day, to see a group of disciples, a new community. See this group. I mean, in some ways, Jesus is addressing a little group there, isn't he? He, he could have called her actually Mary, and then he got most of the group. But woman is even more inclusive because there are other women not named Mary there. I don't know how you account for John here, but it's a little community. And I'm reminded as I hear it this way of what the gospel, the, the, uh, uh, Psalm 68 says, and I love this verse, it's good for us, God sets the lonely in families. Isn't that a great verse? Some translations say God sets the, the solitary in families. This is just who he is. And here Jesus is doing it. It's what Jesus has been doing throughout the whole of John's gospel from the very beginning. His mother is not the only person he has called woman. At the start of a new literal family, that wedding feast in Cana, Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. To a woman who's lost five families, a Samaritan by the well, Jesus says to her, woman, believe in me. To a woman who's been destroying family, caught in adultery, Jesus says to her, woman, has no one condemned you? And to a woman, he's put in a family of disciples after healing her of seven demons, Mary Magdalene, he says, woman, Go to my brothers, back to this family. See, Jesus is setting the lonely, setting the solitary in families, the intentional communities of disciples. He's been doing it with the 12. He's been doing it all along. These are little families, little communities that are not defined by gender or age or ethnicity or orientation or past behavior. No, these are beautiful, little, diverse Families, redemptive families that are formed at the cross of Jesus Christ. They're not defined by those things, but they are defined by God's complete forgiveness and unconditional love. That's what forms these families. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, Jesus says in John. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says in John. As the Father has sent me, so I send you, Jesus says in John. So when Jesus says the Gospel of John, woman, this is the whole book of Acts in a single word. If that's the case, by woman, Jesus means this, care for one another within the endless possibilities of a new creation. But together in little groups like the 12, like these four women together with John as a family in intentional community. Because when you do, the new creation becomes visible to your neighbors. They can see it. And your new community will become a movement of communities that will grow and multiply and ultimately change the world. Because that's what happens. Okay, so it could be that. It could be 
the case for the new community. Isn't John clever? I mean, you've got to understand the multiple levels on which John expects us to read his gospel. All three of these cases are there. All three of these senses are in the meaning of the word woman. And that one stubborn fact, woman. And if we wrestle long enough with it, it'll give up its secrets. This is the thing about a stubborn fact. Once you wrestle with it and figure it out, it doesn't just change the way you see that stubborn fact. It changes the way you see all the other facts of the case. Isn't that true? So here's another fact. We're all alone in the crowd. We're all alone in a crowd. During the pandemic, my wife Anne and I streamed a lot of video, including detective stories. And here's what I noticed about myself. When the series ends and you're done with it, I have this twinge of loneliness. Do you know that? Has that ever happened to you? Like, you're like, ah, where are my friends going now? Right? You go, like, what is that? I think it's because I'm realizing that I get taken in not just by the plot, but by the characters. Subconsciously, as I watch the show, I'm built, something inside of me is building relationship with these characters. They're becoming my people. And then when it's over, it's like, ah, what? Where are they now? How do I get to my friends? So Ann and I are now watching this BBC thing. And I keep asking myself, why am I still watching this thing? I, I don't care at all about the cases. It's usually so complicated that I have to fall asleep by the end just to stay sane. She has to explain it to me the next day. Uh, it, it, by the way, a note for preachers. And the answer, the reason I'm watching the show is because of, well, I call him Ted. Ted has become one of the characters, kind of my personal friend. You would all think of him as Superintendent Hastings. He introduces himself, Hastings, you know, like the battle. This is Ted, this guy's a great guy. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a policeman, he's chief policeman. Uh, he's a little bit clueless, but he always tries to do the right thing. So I, I admire Ted. The only problem with Ted is though, he never calls me. He's never called, not once. I mean, I'm faithfully tuning in every week to my friend Ted. I'm paying attention to him, getting to know him. I'm working for Ted. He's never called me once. See what I'm saying? This is a problem. If Ted, not Ted, the actor who plays him, whoever, BBC, they all seem to have like the same cast. If Ted were to walk in in full regalia, I'd be like, Ted, yeah. And he'd just like walk right by me. He doesn't know me. He doesn't even know I exist. And yet, we're friends. So what am I learning about myself? I think I'm learning three things. First of all, I'm wired for relationship. Now this comes with a package as a human being. You're wired for relationships. We all have deep, deep social needs that need to be met. We need people, even those of us who are introverts. Okay, second thing I'm learning about myself is I am drawn to fake relationships. Let's be honest here. I'm drawn to fake relationships. I mean, think of it this way. I'm on the couch with my wife for an hour. And I get to choose during that hour, am I going to relate to her, we've been married 34 years, or to Ted, and I choose Ted. 
<laughs> the guy that doesn't even know I exist, the fake guy. I mean, he doesn't exist. I'm drawn to fake relationships because it's easier. It's just easier, right? And we, you and I are really good at all kinds of shortcuts to meet those needs for intimacy that are real. Social media, video games, pornography, even our pets. God forbid in Seattle I would say something like that. Why? We project our humanity and we want them to be humans because they do what we tell them to do usually. All these are proxies for a relationship. Which brings me to the third thing I'm learning about myself and that is that I carry a hidden loneliness in my life. I'm, I'm willing to admit that to you today. I carry a hidden loneliness in my life, which is a surprise because it means that you can be happily married, you can have a great family and even a few friends and still carry loneliness inside. Why? Why? There's a man at the University of Chicago who's a professor. They call him affectionately Dr. Loneliness. His name is John Cacioppo. They call him the pioneer of social neuroscience, John Cacioppo. Dr. Loneliness says we all experience it. He writes this, loneliness is a universal condition that makes a person irritable. No way. Not moi. Makes a person irritable, self-centered, depressed, and is associated with a 26% increase in the odds of premature mortality. Whoa. He also, it's not just this, he mentions cardiovascular disease, poor sleep, inflammation, lower immunity. So it's a disease. This loneliness is a disease. It's spreading. I think I caught a case of it. It's becoming an, ep you know this, the Surgeon General says it's an epidemic in America, other countries too. And so what is it? What is loneliness? Well, here's a definition. Think of it this way. Loneliness is your awareness of a gap between your need for social connection and your experience of social connection. It's a gap between, between your need, the connection that you need, and the connection that you're actually getting. That's why you don't have to be alone to experience loneliness, right? You could experience it on a couch next to your best friend, next to your parent, next to your spouse, but there's still, there's a gap there. There's a disconnection in your connection with that person. So John Cacioppo, Dr. Loneliness, would describe this in evolutionary terms, but St. John understands the gap in spiritual terms. Let me explain that to you. This is the story that the Bible tells. The Bible tells us in the very beginning, in the beginning, Genesis 2, there is no gap between the man and the woman. There's no gap. They fit together as bone of each other's bones, we read. They're unified, one flesh, we read. They were completely vulnerable, naked and unashamed. This is the relational connection that they needed and it's the relational connection that they got, no gap. But then, next chapter, Genesis 3, there is a gap between the man and the woman. Why, why, what happens? Well, it's because they put a gap between them and God. They turn from God. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worship things within the creation. Now there's a spiritual gap, a gap between them and God. And here's the key. When there's a spiritual gap, it creates a relational gap. And now they cover themselves in shame. The vulnerability is gone. They hide. 
and they turn against each other in hostility. Remember the man, remember what Adam says when he gets busted by the Lord? He points to the woman and says, she did it. Remember, think about what that means. They heard on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He's going, if someone's going to die here, take my beloved. Bone of my bone a couple minutes ago. Now she's my sacrificial offering. You know, I mean, wow. Adam, there's a gap relationally because there's a gap spiritually. It is no longer truly safe for two human beings to really be real with one another. And this is the Bible's account. (laughs) This is the story. It's not just the problem of loneliness. This is actually the crisis of human history. As long as we are alienated from God, we are alienated from one another. And that's what's at the root of war and poverty and racism and injustice of all kinds. So the point is, Adam and Eve will never overcome some level of loneliness. Adam and Eve, these first parents, and all their children that follow them. They can go to the best dating sites. They can match their personality profiles. They can ride their bikes together. They can get married. They can listen well, do therapy even, and sit on the same couch and watch BBC with my friend Ted and still experience loneliness. They'll on some level know that they're alone in a crowd. There's a gap, a disconnect, large or small depending on the day. But they all and we all carry a hidden loneliness inside. Let's be honest. The woman did, the man did, John did, Mary did. That's the stubborn fact of human existence. Or is it? Or is it? Because we're here in church today. And look, look what Jesus says. Look what John records. These words suggest there's a new crowd at the cross. You there, mother. You there, son. This is God's word speaking from the cross. And a new crowd is forming right in front of him. A new crowd, one that's learning how to care for one another, one that signifies the beginning of a whole new creation, one that's young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile, black and white, introvert, extrovert, gay and straight, conservative and liberal, partiers from Cana, Outcasts from Samaria, people who know the pain of adultery, people who have been healed of seven spirits, real people. But it's a new crowd. And you go, how? How? How does this happen? How does it happen? It's the cross. You know it, don't you? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of all the stubborn facts that ever were, the cross of Jesus is the stubbornest. This between Mary and John is the first relationship ever to form on the basis of the crucified Savior. This is the beginning. So you ask yourself, well, what difference does a cross make to a relationship? And the answer is, it can close the gap. How? Well, it closes the spiritual gap between us and God. At the cross, God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. On that day that we should die, God has taken our place. God dies in our place so that whoever believes in him, Jesus says, will have everlasting life. Spiritual gap closed. And it begins to 
close the relational gap. The curse is reversed. If I'm completely forgiven, I can forgive you. If you're completely forgiven, maybe you'll find a way to forgive me. If I'm unconditionally loved, I can unconditionally love you. If you're unconditionally loved, maybe you can find it in your heart to unconditionally love me. Now we don't have to live with our shame. It's safer to be vulnerable. And ultimately, we will be one, so we might as well practice how to do it right now. You see what happens? The cross changes everything. Now, I, I suggest to you, you, know, you and I are never going to figure this out, how it works entirely. It's just beyond us. But here's what we can do. We can ponder it. And that's what we've come to do today, to ponder the cross. That's what we do during Lent. We ponder the cross. And the more you ponder it, the more light it sheds on your relationships. And the more light it sheds on your relationships, new relationships, new way of old, engaging old relationships, then the more you learn to trust the cross. Ponder the cross and trust the cross. Oh, and if you'll let me, I'll share one last stubborn fact with you. And it's this. This is a crowd that your neighbors need. This is a crowd your neighbors need. Because a, a little community that takes others in as brothers and sisters with forgiveness and the unconditional love of Jesus can be a very, very, very stubborn fact that's hard even for people like your neighbors, smart, sophisticated people, to explain away. Remember our mission here at UPC. We are a family of communities joining Jesus to transform our lives and the lives of our neighbors at the University of Washington and in our neighborhoods and all around the world. Today, you and I have a unique opportunity to engage with this mission. Today, we are hosting, thanks to many of you opening your homes, neighborhood open houses around the greater Seattle area. Actually, many that are quite far from Seattle. Maybe someone right next to you. What I want to do is invite you to find one of these neighborhood open houses later this afternoon from 3 to 5 p.m. and drop in, visit. It's a great way to meet your neighbors. It's a great way to meet fellow UPCers. You can sign up right now. You can pull out your phone and sign up at upc.org events. Click the open houses button. Just fill out the little form there and you'll get, um, you'll get invited. Come alone, bring neighbors, come empty-handed, bring treats. Come for the whole time or just buzz through. But come, come. Your neighbors need you. Jesus has sent you to your neighbors. And I know I don't know your neighbors, but here's what I know about your neighbors. Every single one of them, they carry a burden of hidden loneliness in their lives. They do too. No matter who they are, how popular they are, or cranky and reclusive they might be, no matter how successful or put together your neighbors appear to be, there's an ache, there's a gap, and they don't know what to do with it. And if those of us who ponder and trust the cross of Jesus still feel that gap from time to time in our own lives, just imagine what it's like to feel that gap without the cross. I love what St. John writes at the end of this text. What would it be like if this were true of you today? If John could write this of you today? Here's verse 27. John writes, and from that hour, the disciple, meaning himself, took her into his own home. He took her home. She took him home 
a new family. Now mother and son, son and mother, all because the word of God spoke from the cross. I wonder what we'd hear if Jesus spoke to us today. He's here, you can see a picture of him here uh, on the cross at the center of the glory window. That's Jesus there. What if I would be quiet for just a moment and he suddenly spoke, what would he say? I imagine he'd look at you and say, son. And then he'd look at you and say, mother. He'd look at you and say, niece. And look at you and say, cousin. He'd look at us and say, brothers and sisters. I mean, I, don't know, I know we don't look like much to each other. I mean, look around the room. You know, there's nothing fancy or impressive about us. But to Jesus, we look like family. Behold, look. So let's get together and go next door. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, thank you that you got off the cross. Thank you that you rose from the dead and left the grave empty. Thank you that you ascended to the right hand of God our Father on our behalf. Thank you that you sent forth your Holy Spirit so that we could be sent into the neighborhoods of Seattle to join you on mission. Jesus, today we ask a blessing on our neighbors. We, we know we're blessed. Thank you for blessing us. Now we pray that you will bless through us. Bless our neighbors, we pray. Bless them. We pray it for your sake and glory and for the good of our city. In Jesus' name, amen.